All right, if you would, be turning in your Bibles to Micah chapter 4. We'll be in Micah 4. And as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that I want us to walk away with this morning. It's this. God's judgment paves the way for his peaceful reign with his people. Let me say that again. God's judgment paves the way for his peaceful reign with his people. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word this morning, this is Micah chapter 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken, for all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame, I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon." There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now, many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron." And I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat into pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, what do you normally expect to result from judgment? Right? Whether it is uh, discipline, right? You get caught in something and, and, and you get called to account what do you normally expect to be the result of your sin being exposed or your sin being prosecuted in some way, shape, or form? If we're honest, we, we try to get out of it, do we not? We try to minimize it. We try to hold on to some shred of what we think is our dignity in the process to somehow prove we're not as bad as we truly are. Whereas... 
If we were to truly believe the gospel, we would recognize this pattern that judgment always precedes redemption. The most glorious place where this is true is Christ. You are a Christian because God's judgment fell in full for your sin, past, present, and future on Christ and Christ alone, which made possible your redemption. You do understand that there was no redemption apart from the judgment of God being satisfied. Now, that's the most beautiful and glorious example of that. We also see that in the new heavens, new earth, this also remains true. If you remember when we went through Revelation for Advent and Easter, one of the things that we saw in Revelation 20 is that judgment came before Christ made all things new, before the descending of the city before God would dwell with his people in full. And so this pattern is very important for us because it should allow us to continue to be obedient to God even when we're caught in sin. That we would recognize that he's trying to help us to, to actually enjoy the good gifts that he's given us, purify us so that we can enjoy him and not run from him in fear. We should fear him and be in awe of him because of his creatorness and our creatureliness. But what we don't want to do is ever to run from the one who loves us more than we could ever comprehend. And so remember that here we have a courtroom drama that the prophet has called the people together to receive judgment. In chapter 2, remember the, the judgment went out for the general populace, and it was based on their greediness and their covetousness. Now, that's going to be important because what we're going to see here is the Lord is going to take that away. Not just in judgment as in destroy them, but he's going to take it away so that they could truly enjoy his good gifts and his goodness to them. And so he then turns to, if you remember, the civic leaders who were not like our elected officials today. These folks had the actual charge of representing God to the people. The kings, the princes, the counselors, all of them, that was their charge. And they had failed. If you remember, they had commodified the people. In fact, he used strong language. They were consuming the people. They were tearing them apart. They weren't benefiting them in the way that their servant call required. And you remember the prophets and priests were guilty of the same. If you pay me enough, I'll tell you what you want to hear. If you don't, I will curse you. And so it was all this commodified exchange going on. And as we talked about last week, a key aspect of justice is relationship. Whenever we are seeking to be just, it should always be for the restoration of relationship, to be in a relationship with the people that we're seeking to serve. And they had failed. And the news was bad, if you remember. He said, as a result of what you've done, I'm going to turn Jerusalem into a heap. Now, from that heap of ashes rises this glorious hope in restoration. But we need to hear it rightly because I think sometimes we hope that the promises of God mean that we get out of the process of becoming, that we get out of the process of being made Christ-like and that we won't have to suffer. That's just not true. In fact, you can't become like Jesus without suffering because of our humanity, which is sinful in and of itself. And so we need to make sure we rightly hear this word of hope so that we would know how then we should live between the, the, the advents. Let me turn back to the text. 
He starts, it shall come to pass in the latter days. Let me pause here for a second. In the Old Testament, whenever you see the term the latter days, that's referring to a time in the future when things would be restored. Or there would be a final judgment that would open the way for redemption, for God to be able to dwell with his people, right? Remember, what is God's will? My Tuesday morning group should be versed in this, as should many of the rest of you. What's God's will? For God to be with his people and redeem them and to enjoy them. It's not just to be with them so he can remind them of how terrible they are. No, he wants to be with them so that they will know what a gift they are to him as his children. And that they would be able to taste and see of the fullness of his goodness at long last. That is God's will. So often you ask people this question, they think it has something more to do with day-to-day stuff. And it does, actually, if you frame it that way. Like, who you marry. Like, what, what is God's will for who you should marry? Well, you should marry someone who's going to help you know that God loves you. You should marry someone uh, that, that is going to help you to walk in light of the hope of the restoration that comes in Christ. What job should you take? You should take a job that helps you, certainly doesn't hinder you from being able to worship, from being able to enjoy the Lord your God, from being able to know that God loves you and that God is going to make all things new in Jesus. Where should you live? You should live in a place that helps you. You see where I'm going here? Do I have to keep going? You should, you should root for a football team. Bulldog Nation, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But Michigan, hey, we're still, you're still Okay. I had to get it in somewhere, I suppose. Better early than later. All right, so the latter days clues us in that this ain't today. It's something that's coming, but today should be affected by what is coming and what's coming. It says that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. Now, let's pause for a second. What he's saying here is that the government of the Lord would transcend and reign over all other earthly governances. That there would be no higher uh, point to look to. There would be no greater king than God himself. At long last, God would take up his rule among his people. And notice what happens as a result of this mountain coming into being. Then many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Let me pause here. Remember the mission of God. What's the Abrahamic covenant? Paul calls it the gospel in Galatians 3. The point of the whole story of the people of God is that we would be as hospitable and generous as the Lord our God, who calls for every tongue, tribe, and nation to worship. Right? And so that's what Israel had been selected for. That's why they were given the promised land. That's why they were granted all of the resources that they had. But remember, in their prosperity, they dangerously forgot the Lord their God. They dangerously forgot their mission. In fact, they begin to identify themselves less as the people of God and more as nationalistic ethnic Jews. See the danger? When we make an identity of some other kind higher than that which uh, the Lord has placed upon us in Christ, calling us his people, his sons and daughters, as Christians, then we get in trouble every single solitary time. 
And so for, for, for those of you who, again, from last week, I, I brought up Christian nationalism, the fact that, that we sometimes place our identity in Christ and our, our status as Americans, either we try to make them equal, but they can't ever be, or we elevate one over the other. One begins to inform more what we think about the other than ought be so. If you want to be a great American, be a Christian. Be a Christian in loving the Lord your God in worship and having hope and being creative. Be a Christian in loving your neighbor, whatever color they are, whatever they, they call themselves, whatever it is they're doing, call them to worship the Lord your God. That would be a wonderful American right there. If you want to be wonderful in some other sort of identity, it's the same. Be a Christian in that identity as a husband or father or wife or mother or grandmother or grandfather, as I now am. Whatever the identity is, it should be informed by and influenced by who you are in Christ. It should submit itself in full to who you are in Christ. And too often, that is not what's happening for us. In every riven direction, for those of you who are saying, finally, he's going after those folks on the right. No, I'm going after all of you. Christ has come for all of you. Christ calls for every single one of us to not be the kind of people who make division who we are. And so, here it is very important to see that the mission of God will come true with or without us. Better with. Better that we would serve as ambassadors of reconciliation instead of him having to sweep us out of the way so that the people who need him could get to him. Let us not be a hindrance and an incumbent to the mission of God with our idolatry and our sinfulness and our foolishness. Why would we not want to be part of this? I can't help but think when Jesus was dining with sinners, which by the way, if you really think about that, Jesus hung out with some, some pretty inveterate sinners. It's not like we've made sin more awful as time has gone by. No, they had, it, they had it pretty well under control back then too. And he would eat with these people and hang out with them. And they, and they according to Luke 15, end of 14, they actually were listening. That's why he spent time with them. They were willing to listen. The religious folks didn't want to listen. I'm actually doing them too much of a service to call them religious, to be honest. And remember, they grumbled. They got angry. And Jesus said, let me tell you a parable in four parts. Part of that parable was the prodigal son. Part of that parable was the, the person who goes after the sheep. And if you remember, we taught on this not too long ago. The party that was thrown was way more money spent than the sheep was worth. Remember the woman who found the coin throws a party? She spent way more than that coin Throw in the party, right? What does that tell you? That God is willing to exhaust the best of what heaven has to offer to reach even one of his lost people. That he longs to, and heaven breaks out in a party, when one lost sinner comes home. Why are we not more enamored with that? Why are we not more moved by that and moved to participate in that? And essentially, if, if you remember how the story ends... The brother has come home, a party is thrown, the elder brother, who represents the religious folks, is standing outside, refuses to come in, and the father goes to him too. 
and basically says, do you do well to be so angry? To stand out here and refuse the good from my hand to celebrate the fact your brother's returned. That's what he's saying to them. Do you guys not know the story? Do you not know why you were chosen? You were elect to help make these parties possible. You've been chosen to actually participate in one of the greatest things that you could ever be part of, which is the eternal redemption of another human being, an image bearer. That should move us. That should inform how we act and move as all the other identifiers. And so what we see here is the Lord has promised, no, this is going to happen. Revelation 7 Heaven will be populated with every tongue, tribe, and nation, whether or not you're part of it or not. People will stream in, according to Revelation 21, whether you're part of it or not. Better you be part of it. And he goes on. There's even better than that coming. Not just will the nation stream in, but shalom will come, which is peace, not just in the sense of no war, but in terms of everybody having everything they could possibly need and being satisfied with it, God's presence most of all. He says, He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. He's saying peace will come at the return of Christ. This is why Advent for us, while it's a season of celebration, it's also a season of longing. We recognize that we reside between the now and the not yet, between the promise of restoration that is to come and the beneficences of the restoration that's already been given to us, right? So we live out of what has already begun in Christ. We live out of the promises being fulfilled in real time. And so what he's saying is at the end, when all things will be made new, war will be no more and everybody will have what they need. That covetousness that you got judged for in chapter two, that greed, it will be no more. Everybody will have everything they need and be satisfied with it. And most of all, they'll be satisfied with the Lord. But there is a reality, lest we be universalists, in verse 5, for all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, meaning there will still be people who turn away from that. There's still people who listen to that promise and say, no, I don't want that. I don't want to be part of that. That sounds terrible. It sounds boring. I like war. I like to fight. I like the taste of blood. But we who are in Christ will walk in the name of the Lord our God. Forever and ever. So what he's saying here is when, when you are redeemed, you are secure. This is the assurance of our pardon. And then he turns. Notice so far the people of God kind of been absent, the ones that are present in the room at that time for this judgment. And notice he now turns to them. He's, he basically has said, look, I'm going to make sure that my promise in the Abrahamic covenant is going to come true. That's coming true. And so far you got to think for them, they're like, well, are we in or are we out? In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those, and this is really important, whom I have afflicted. So those who the Lord has judged and has scattered into exile, 
He will bring back and heal. Their judgment actually paves the way for their redemption. All of their prosperity was not leading them closer to the heart of the Lord. All of their prosperity was not helping them fulfill the mission of God for which they had been chosen. So guess what had to go? All that prosperity. Now, might we be in a similar circumstance if we're not careful? What have we done with all that the Lord has given to us, we who self-declared, and maybe by some other people, the greatest nation on earth? It's a mixed bag, if we're honest. We've done some good things, and we've done some pretty horrible things. Do we get to say, well, it should balance out? No, that's works-based theology. That's silly. Holiness is, is, is absolute. It is pure. And where we have sinned, what does this tell us? What does God's word tell us? If you have sinned and judgment befalls you, which way should you run? To the throne of God. You should run to the place where you can receive both mercy and grace in the time of your trouble. Judgment is not the worst thing that can happen to you. It is separation from God that is the worst thing that can happen to you, which is an aspect of judgment, finally. But the judgment between the now and the not yet that comes before that, that disciplining is a good thing. And you don't come back without a limp. He wounds us. He makes lame. He casts out, but he brings back. Notice what else he has to say. And the lame I will make the remnant, which is fulfillment of his promise in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And those who were cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And so part of his promise is not only will he fulfill his Abrahamic covenant, not only will he fulfill his mission, he's also going to restore his own people. They are not cast off forever. Amen? Because we are all sinful. We've all come up short just this week, maybe even just this morning. It is good news to us that the Lord loves us. We need not ever run from him. We should run to him to bear fruits in keeping with repentance, unloading ourselves with the fullness of the weight of our sin as best we know how. Because Christ has paid for it all. And he says, as a result of this, this should be how we respond and you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. We need to recognize that as the church, we get the chance to be a part of this reign. We get a chance to be part of the making of all things new. We get a chance to be part of people's eternities being shaped. But notice how they respond, because they heard something they didn't like. And maybe you did too. Now, why do you cry aloud? So remember, this is a courtroom scene and the people are all gathered and he's just shared with them this future hope. But within it, because remember, they haven't yet gone into exile. They have yet to be afflicted and made lame. So they cry aloud because no, 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 I don't want to do all that. I thought you were our God and we were going to get out of all this suffering. I thought we were, we were good. I thought we could just skip all that. And jump just straight to the good stuff. And he says, is there no king in you? No king among you? What'd he do? What'd your civic leaders do? Where'd they point? 
And he says, has your counselors, meaning the religious folks, perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Why are, they, why are you crying aloud now that judgment has come? Where were your cries when you were being sinful and covetous and greedy, stealing from the poor, taking their land? Where were your cries when your leaders who were chosen to serve you consumed you? Remember, they paid the prophets to tell them what they wanted to hear. And they told them to shut up when they didn't say what they wanted them to hear. They tried to cut off the word of God. And remember, the Lord was gracious to make sure that a prophet would continue, that Micah, as well as others, would speak into the circumstance. The voice of the Lord could not be silenced by their sin. So where were their cries when all that sinful stuff was going on, but they were prospering? Did you just hear what I said? Did you? Because this is important for us to hear. There, there should be some cries coming from us. Not because of the Lord saying he's going to send us into exile or, or he, he's going to give us the Omicron variant or he's going to do whatever he's going to do with Marxism or CRT or whatever it is that you are most worried about other than his holiness. Might we be more concerned with whether or not we look anything like Jesus? I don't have a problem. Please hear me. I don't have a problem for you looking around and saying something ain't right. Because it ain't. It ain't been right since east of Eden. And I don't say that to diminish the aspects of what's actually not right now. I say that to say, I, I, I respect the fact we should be afraid of some stuff going on. We should be confused by all the swirling misinformation and, and the death of expertise. We should uh, be uh, anxious about some of the things that are happening, but which way are you running with all that? And what is more important to you, your safety and security, which, by the way, doesn't exist outside of the Lord your God. Do you understand that? Any safety and security you could, you could come up with by your own hand will be destroyed from within before it is even destroyed from without. If the Lord your God is not in it, if it does not glorify and honor him, it must go. So it's really important that we get things in right order. I'm not saying that we shouldn't critique our present, past, and future governments. I am not suggesting that we should not wonder at some of the stuff that's going on. That I'm not really a conspiracy theorist, but if you're trying to tell me there's no conspiracy, you're going about it way wrong. But what I am saying is that stuff must be governed by, okay, but all that being true, who is actually afflicting us? God is. And what might we do better? Where should we look? What should we be more concerned with, given our own frailty and limitedness and limitedness of time? Where might we get better answers? Where might we most benefit from, from, from being and doing? Well, in Christ that we would grow in the fruit of the Spirit, that we would bear fruits in keeping with repentance, that we would be creative and hopeful instead of cynical and angry and confused, adding to the problem instead of offering any sort of solution. Because, notice what he says, 
Verse 10, writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. Now, if that's where the book ended, would that be good news? Not at all. But notice what he says next. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. In order for them to be redeemed, they had to go into exile. Why? Because they had lost sight of who and whose they are. Are we not capable of the same thing? Is this just a a history text that's really just for the Jews and has no bearing on the church or our present circumstance at all? No, it it does, because the pattern repeats. If you remember in the book of Revelation, the letters to the churches, the five that aren't doing so hot, they're going to go into exile of some kind. The two that are actually being obedient are also going to suffer, but they're called to obedience just the same. And so it's very important that we recognize that this is a pattern that repeats. Where did God meet you in Christ? Where were you? Were you, were you getting yourself together? You, you were beginning to display some pretty significant holiness and God just couldn't help but from heaven take notice because the shine that was coming from the earth was blinding. <laughs> no, he met you in Babylon, your own. He met you where you were broken in sin and sat in darkness and said to you who sit in darkness, come out. He has been doing this forever. He has been doing this since sin was a problem. Meeting us in the places of the greatest darkness, and I love how the Old Testament describes it. It asks the question, can the the arm of the Lord be shortened? Meaning, is there a distance at which he cannot reach? No. Why is that good news to us parents? Why would that be good news for you to know that the arm of the Lord cannot be shortened? You who have been so obedient to raise your children in the admonition of the Lord, you did the best you could. You tried to repent when you made mistakes, and yet they still seem to be turning away. What hope would you have? If not, that it was true that the arm of the Lord cannot be shortened and that he redeems in the midst of Babylon. For those of us who are in ministry, for those of you who care about any other human being, for those of you who want to see the world be a better place, what hope is it that you presently have? If it is not the redemptive arm of the Lord that can reach into the deepest and darkest of places to declare to those who sit in darkness, come out. For those of you who are Christians who find yourself in a desert place, you feel like you are caught out in an open country, what hope would you have if it was left to you to muster the the passion, to muster the emotion necessary to taste and see that the Lord is good? This is the glory of the Lord our God. And there's another angle to this that will be part of it is when they go into exile, guess who's going to cheer first? All the surrounding nations that they had failed to reach with the glory of God. 
They are now their enemies. And so when they go into exile, notice what it says. Many nations will be assembled against you saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. That's to say for it to be exposed and made nude and to look on in a lewd fashion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. That he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Remember in Revelation 20 how we talked about this great epic that the Bible is and all of a sudden you're expecting this wonderful, this crazy battle like something you would see in Lord of the Rings or Braveheart or whatever movie Mel Gibson made about a period piece. You know, you just expected some huge battle, but there's none. Remember, they gather, the enemies gather thinking, all right, it's fixed to be a fight then it's over. Now, did the, did the writers just get tired? No, there's no competition. It is, essentially, it has always been over. And so they will be gathered as sheaves to the threshing floor. He says, arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now, for those of you who thought, I just read you a text that, that, that in any way, shape, or form makes a, a militaristic destruction of another group of people a good thing, you are wrong. What he's talking about here, and it's very important because we see it all throughout Scripture, he's talking about the, the threshing in terms of bringing in the wheat and separating the wheat from the tares, essentially. Yes, there will be some who perish in judgment, but there will be many more who are redeemed to make up every tongue, tribe, and nation. This is not about commodities. This is about people which God loves more than anything else. And remember what Jesus said? He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers, not the warriors, the workers are few. The workers to do what in the harvest? Help bring people in. In Revelation, when he tells the angel that the time is ripe, put your sickle in to the harvest. It's redemptive. Judgment is part of that redemption. There will be some that are lost. But this, he's calling them again to participate in the growing of the family. And yes, there is warlike language in Scripture, but it is not for us to exact. What will be unto us that we think that God is on our side from last week? Would that we were actually on his side according to his mission, according to his love, accomplishing what he longs for which as Scripture tells us over and over and over again is that the family would get bigger. Listen to what Bruce Waltke has to say about this. He says, Micah 4, 1 through 5 in particular's overall thrust is that God's gracious salvation of man has the last word, not his judgment on man's defeats. In this prophecy, more precisely, Jerusalem, which fell darkly under the rule of lawless judges and ecclesiastics, will not end as a heap of rubble, despised and trampled under the feet of uncircumcised armies, but will in the latter days be esteemed universally and eternally as the place of God's throne and the source of just laws that issue into peace. So the question that I have for us that we need to consider 
is in what ways does God's promise of his peaceful reign with his, us, his people, help you to faithfully navigate the present confusion, anxiety, and suffering of life in a fallen world? So when, when something throws you off, which way do you run? What is your biggest concern when, when you are gripped by fear or anger or anxiety? Is it God's holiness? Is it to, to be obedient and faithful to what he has called you to be in Christ? Or is it to be right? Is it to be powerful? Is it to be the one who decides? Is it to diminish someone else who bears his image? See, this has implications for us, does it not? And this is part of why Advent's so important to us to remind us of this on a regular basis, to point forward to what Christ is going to do. And this is the great gift of us being able to partake of the Lord's table on a day on which we've heard this. This table, if you remember, is, is evidence of God's judgment on Christ so that redemption would become possible for his people. And this table not just points back to what Christ has done, but forward to his coming. And it supplies us, it nourishes our faith between the now and the not yet. It helps us in ways that it's hard for us to comprehend or understand. It builds us up in ways that it's hard for us to comprehend or understand. It is a gift to us. And so, if you are not a believer here today, then I would ask that you not partake of the table. It doesn't, doesn't do anything magical if you're not already in union with Christ. But if you are, and maybe you haven't had the best week of your life, maybe you hadn't had the best day of your life, you need this table if you're in Christ. You need to be reminded of who and whose you are and the great gift that this table represents. Father, thank you that we have this table to remind us of what's coming, what has come, and that Christ has condescended to us and met us in, in a thousand different individual Babylons, a thousand different places of darkness, and called us who were sitting in darkness to come out and to participate and join in as ambassadors of reconciliation the great and beautiful mission that you have in this world to grow the family. Give us a heart. Nourish our hearts with this table this morning with a passion to, to see lost sinners come home, to see those who sit in darkness come out, to see those who are gripped with fear and anger and confusion, that they would be restored. God, help us this morning. Look more like Jesus as a result of what we will partake of and to look forward with great hope for what Christ will do when he returns to make all things new. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.